morning, church family. Oh, it is good to be back in the pulpit after a couple of weeks off. But as always, I am so thankful for my partner in ministry here, Mr. Ricardo Vargas, and for his faithful sermon and exposition two weeks ago. However, concerning Ricardo's sermon, I just want to make clear to everyone before we begin, it was 100% Ricardo's doing to steal Mike's story two weeks ago, and not mine. So Mike, if you are listening, do not blame me on that. I am innocent, I promise. Ricardo is probably bad-mouthing me on the live stream as we speak. Nevertheless, church, over the past couple of weeks, we have seen in 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John unveil a two-step technique, if you will, to help his Christian readers discern the Spirit of God from the Spirit of the Antichrist. And initially, John made it very clear that if you want to be able to discern the Spirit of God from the Spirit of the Antichrist, then just listen to what the teacher or the prophet confesses about Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit of God, verse 2, will always, always, always confess that Jesus is the Christ and came in the flesh. Whereas the Spirit of the Antichrist, verse 3, will simply not confess Jesus. However, the Apostle John, he did not stop there. Because as Ricardo shared two weeks ago, not only can we discern a false teacher by the content of their message, but we can also discern a false teacher by the audience that they keep. Because you see, church, the false prophets, verse 5, they are from the world and they speak from the world. Meaning they talk worldly talk, they preach worldly messages, and they promote worldly ideas. And thus the audience they keep is naturally, verse 5, that of the world. For it is the world who listens to them. It is the world who loves them, and it is the world who accepts them, and not the children of God. Because, verse 4, he who is in the children of God, that being the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, that being the spirit of the Antichrist. So although the messages and the teachings and the promises of these false teachers are seductive, when the Holy Spirit abides in the children of God, he empowers them to reject the false teachers and ultimately, verse 4, the children of God, they overcome them. Therefore, John says in verse 6, whoever knows God, a.k.a. the children of God, they listen to us. Meaning they listen to the words of the apostles and the prophets as recorded in the very word of God. Whereas those who do not know God, they naturally reject the apostles' teaching. And they instead follow the false prophets who teach and who preach and who promote the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, or that which leads to eternal death. And thus John opens up chapter 4 by offering his Christian readers the tools they need to discern the spirit of God from the spirit of air, also that they do not get swept away by false teachings, but instead remain steadfast, abiding in God. However, today, John transitions back to a topic that we, his readers, are all too familiar with, that being the topic of love. I mean, John isn't called the apostle of love for nothing, church. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning, or the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christian, God is love, 
and God abides in you. Thus, we should love one another as a means for our God to display himself to the world. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. Christian, God is love and God abides in you. Thus, we should love one another as a means for our God to display himself to the world. And as for our text this morning, it comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Thus, at this time, church, everyone, please grab your Bibles, open them up, turn to the text, and follow along as we as a church body work our way through 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 together. To the Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. Even though we cannot meet here at this church building today, we as the church body can still meet. Lord, we can still sing praises to you. We can still pray in mind and in spirit. We can still hear your word preached today and glorify you, Father, as we build each other up in Christ's likeness. Father, I pray that you open the eyes and the ears and soften the hearts of this dear congregation, this dear flock this morning. Father, you are love. Everything you do comes from your nature, which is that of love. Whether you discipline us, whether you carry out your judgment, you do so in love. Thus, Father, as your children who have your spirit abiding in us, let us love one another and display your glory to the world. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our first of two points this morning is this, church. Point number one, God is love, God defines love, and God has clearly displayed his love to his children. Again, point number one, God is love, God defines love, and God has clearly displayed his love to his children. For that, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 10, which reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now this theme of love, it is far from uncommon territory to the apostle John. For John wrote back in chapter 2 verse 10, Whoever loves his brother 
abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Meaning our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, it showcases that we are truly in fellowship with God and have God abiding in us. Whereas in chapter 3, verse 11, John wrote, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Meaning our love for one another, it gives evidence that we are no longer dead in our sins, but have passed out of death and now possess the gift of eternal life. However, today John continues to amplify this theme of loving one another. For he writes in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us, one, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Again, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Meaning that our love for one another, church, it not only displays that we are in fellowship with God, First John 2, it not only displays that we have the gift of eternal life from God, 1 John 3, but as we will see from the rest of our text today, our love for one another, it also displays the very nature of God to the world because, verse 8, God is love. Now, before we go on, let me briefly address what John means here when he says that God is love because we see this phrase everywhere in our secular society today. For it is on mugs and bumper stickers, posters and t-shirts, billboards and yard signs. I mean, honestly, outside of judge not that you be not judged, God is love might be our secular society's favorite Bible verse. However, what our secular society fails to realize is that John also says in 1 John chapter 1 that God is light. And in his gospel, John writes in chapter 4 that God is spirit. And furthermore, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, he writes that God is a consuming fire. Thus, how exactly can God be loved, but also be a consuming fire at the same time? Well, when John says that God is love, he's not saying that our worldly definition or understanding of love is what defines who God is. Nor is he saying that since God is love, that love is divine or that love is God. Instead, when John says God is love, what he's saying, as Daniel Aiken pointed out, is that God and God alone defines love because it is the very character, the very essence, and the very nature of God to love. Therefore, everything our God does, everything he supernaturally appoints, sovereignly ordains, and divinely decrees, he does so in love. Thus, when God carries out his justice, church, he does so in love. Even when God disciplines his children, he does so in love. Even when God allows persecution to touch the redeemed, he does so in love. For love cannot be divorced from anything that our God does because our God, church, he is love. As Charles Goss in his book, Echoes from the Pulpit and Platform, wrote, Charles Spurgeon once visited a friend who had, a, who had built a new barn. And on top of the barn was a weather vane with the words, God is love. Spurgeon asked his friend, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that God's love is as changeable as the wind? 
His friend answered, no, of course not. I believe that God is love whichever way the wind blows. Thus, everything our Heavenly Father does, it comes abundantly to us in love, church, because our God, He is love. However, He's not just love in word or talk, but our God, He's love in deed and in action. For John writes in verses 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Church, this is how the love of God was made manifest to us. This is how the love of God was displayed to us. For God, verse 9, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world. A world that was dead in their trespasses and sins. A world that fell short of the glory of God. A world that exchanged the truth for a lie. A world that did not seek the will of God, understand the ways of God, or desire any of the things of God. For that is the world that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into. Also that we might live, Christian, verse 9, eternal through him, so that the blind could see, so that the lame could walk, so that the deaf could hear, so that the dead could be raised, so that life could be given to the lifeless, righteousness to the unrighteous, and new birth to those who need to be born again. For this is love, church, defined by God in action. And it is not, verse 10, that we love God, but it is instead that God loved us and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. The wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our rejection of God, our rebellion against God, and for our hatred toward the very things of God. You see, church, God's holy wrath, it is a wrath that we justly deserve for our sins. But in love, God sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to bear that wrath for us, to be crushed on our behalf, crucified in our place, and die as our substitute. Thus, do not miss this point, church, for only Jesus Christ was delivered over to death for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. Thus, it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be redeemed from the curse of the law and and only in Jesus Christ that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. For that is how the love of God was made manifest to us, church, in the incarnation and atonement of Jesus Christ. Therefore, never, ever, ever be mistaken, church, for the world's perception of love does not define who our God is, but it is our God who defines what love is. And in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his own only son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins so that we might live eternally through him. Oh, to God be the glory for his eternal, sacrificial, always and forever love for his children. Which takes us to point number two. Christian, when we love one another... God displays himself to the world. Christian, when we love one another, God displays himself to the world. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So as Christians who now grasp what love is, because God has defined it for us, Jesus Christ has displayed it to us, and the Holy Spirit now dwells in us. We then, as the children of God, verse 11, ought to love one another. For that is the natural and proper response of those who have been loved by God first. But even more than that, the Spirit of God, he now makes it unnatural for us as the children of God to harbor any feelings of bitterness and hate and enmity toward each other. To illustrate this point, Francis Schaeffer shared that during World War II, Hitler commanded that all religious groups unite so that he could control them easier. However, among one Christian denomination, half of them obeyed and the other half refused. Those who went along with the order had a much easier time, but those who did not, many faced harsh persecution and even death. Thus, when the war was over, Feelings of bitterness and hate ran deep between these two groups. Therefore, they decided that the situation had to be healed. Thus, leaders from each group met at a quiet retreat, and for several days, each person spent time in prayer, examining their own heart in light of Christ's command to love one another. Then they came together. Francis Schaeffer asked a friend of his who was there, What happened next? We were just one, his friend replied. For as we confessed our hostility and bitterness to God and yielded to his control, the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among us. Love filled our hearts and dissolved all of our hatred. Thus, when love prevails amongst believers, especially in times of disagreement, it presents to the world an indisputable mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ. You see, brother Christian, sister Christian, we no longer possess the same nature as the world, that being the nature of Cain or the nature of hate. Therefore, I am telling you, Christian, it is a pain to cling to hostility and disgust and opposition. And it is a burden to consistently thrust enmity and bitterness and wrath towards your neighbor because that is no longer who you are in Jesus Christ. For your nature, Christian, it is no longer one of worldly hate, but instead it is a nature that has been born again, a nature that has been born of God, a nature that now possesses the love of God. Therefore, for the Christian to embrace unfriendliness, for the Christian to cling to past grudges, for the Christian to cultivate feelings of rivalry and jealousy and anger, it is like a pig trying to fly, a whale trying to run, a giraffe trying to swim, for it is simply not a natural way of life for the Christian. Because those who have been loved by God, those who have been born of God, and those who have God's Spirit abiding in them, naturally they desire to love one another because that is now who they are in Jesus Christ. And thus John writes in verse 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now when John writes in verse 12 that no one has ever seen God, what he means is that no man has ever seen God the Father in his full presence, in his fully revealed state, completely unveiled and displaying his complete and eternal glory. 
Therefore, if we as the children of God, verse 12, love one another, not only does it prove, verse 12, that God abides in us, but also, verse 12, that God's love is perfected in us or that it reaches its intended goal in us. Thus, if we properly put all of these pieces together here in verse 12, what John is communicating to his readers is this, that when we love each other, something powerful, something awesome, something supernatural takes place, whether we realize it or not. Because as we love each other, as brothers and sisters in Christ, the unseen God of the universe, he displays himself to the world. Let me say it again. As we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, the unseen God of the universe, he displays himself to the world. Or as John Stott put it, mutual Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God who once revealed himself in Jesus Christ is now revealed in his people. Therefore, our love for each other, church, it is evidence that our God, that he is alive, that he is active, and that he is present in this world and in our very lives. Thus D.L. Moody wrote, show me a church where there is love and I will show you a church that is a power in their community. In Chicago a few years ago, a little boy attended a Sunday school class. However, his parents moved to another part of the city and the little fellow still insisted on attending that same Sunday school, although it meant a much longer and more tiresome walk each way. Therefore, a friend asked him why he traveled so far, since there were plenty of other churches just as good near his home. The little boy responded, well, they may be as good for others, but they are not as good for me. And why not, his friend asked, because they love me over there, the little boy replied. Moody concludes, if only we could make the world believe that we love them. There would be fewer empty churches and a smaller portion of our population who never darken a church door. Let love replace duty in our church relations, and the world will soon be evangelized. You see, church, if a non-Christian walks into our building and they immediately notice that we are angry with each other, it is going to be hard to display for them the love of God. Or if a non-Christian hears us gossiping about each other, it is going to be hard to display to them the love of God. Or if a non-Christian sees us being indifferent toward each other, or not communicating with each other, or not encouraging each other, it is going to be hard to display to them the love of God. However, on the flip side of that, if our DNA, Faith Bible Fellowship Church, if our ethos, if our very nature is that of sacrificial, genuine, and Christ-like love toward each other, and the non-Christian walks into this building, and they see us meeting and greeting each other, and they hear us praying for and encouraging each other, and they notice that people from different backgrounds and races and communities are all here loving and caring and investing in each other through this love. Christian, the world, they are going to see that the unseen God, that he is alive and active and present in this church and in his people. And yet there's no need to stop their church. Because if we take our love for each other outside of these walls, 
and we begin to disciple each other at the coffee shop and encourage each other at work functions and cheer for the children at their soccer games and pray for each other at the hospital, again, through this kind of real and genuine and Christ-like love for each other, the world, they are going to see him, church, for they are going to see the very presence of God and the very love of God displayed in our very lives. Thus, Faith Bible Fellowship Church never, ever, ever miss an opportunity to love one another. For to miss an opportunity to love one another, it is to miss an opportunity to be used by God to display his presence and his love to a world that desperately, desperately, desperately needs to see him. Now, as we close this morning, I want to begin with the non-Christian who is listening first. Because non-Christian, I realize that some of you might be sitting there this morning thinking that, sure, God, he might be love, but he certainly doesn't love me. Because nobody loves me. My dad, he left me when I was a kid and told me and told the world that he didn't love me. My mom, she stopped loving me when I got into trouble as a teenager. My friends, well, they keep walking away from me as soon as things get tough. Thus, every meaningful relationship I have ever had has fallen apart. Therefore, if my friends and my family and those closest to me can't even love me, then how am I supposed to believe that a perfect and holy and sovereign God who reigns over all, that he could ever love me? And if that is you this morning, non-Christian, please know in no way... Am I trying to undermine or make light of the pain or the hurt or the lack of love you may have experienced in your life? For I know these feelings are real and raw and painful, and I am sorry that you had to experience them. However, if I can share some truth with you this morning, non-Christian, no matter how many people have walked away from you, no matter how many failed relationships you have been a part of, no matter how unlovable you think you are. While we were still weak, at the right time, Jesus Christ, he died for the ungodly. For Jesus Christ, he came not to save the well, but to save those who are unwell. He came not to save the righteous, but to save the unrighteous. He came to love those who the world dismissed, who the world hated, and who the world rejected. For he came into this world to seek and to save the lost. In love, Jesus Christ, non-Christian, he came into this world to seek and to save you. And how did he do that? Well, initially, Jesus Christ, he did for you, non-Christian, what you could never do. For Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, he lived a life that was good and righteous and holy and perfect. And in doing so, he kept every facet of the law of God, all for the children of God. However, Jesus' love, it did not stop there. Because he also, verse 10, became the propitiation for our sins. Meaning that Jesus Christ willingly bore the wrath that we deserve for our sins. By taking our sin upon himself and dying in our place. For Jesus Christ, he was beaten and crucified, nailed to a cross on Calvary. And he gave himself up as a perfect and spotless and sinless sacrifice on our behalf. The righteous one of God, Jesus Christ, willingly dying for the unrighteous. 
however non-Christian, the story, it did not end there. Because sin and death, they couldn't keep the sinless Son of God dead. Because Jesus Christ, He is truly God. Jesus Christ, He is truly sinless. And Jesus Christ, He perfectly appeased the wrath of God the Father toward the sins of all of His children. Thus, three days later, Jesus Christ, He rose from the grave, defeating sin and defeating death, and in love, offering eternal life to all who place their trust in Him. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, as the only one who died for your sin and can clothe you in his perfect light, in his righteousness and reconcile you back to God forever. Non-Christian, do not believe what the world is telling you because your sins, they can be forgiven. Do not believe what your past is telling you because the God of the universe, he does love you. And do not believe what your subconscious or your psyche is telling you, for, telling you, for you can still be raised with Jesus Christ to endless life. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you place your trust in Christ. And I promise you, today you will experience the never-ending, never-fading, always and forever love that God has for his children. And to the Christian who is here this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, Last week, I attended an event at Lancaster Bible College, and the event was a panel discussion concerning some of the hot topic issues of our day. And at times, the discussion got somewhat heated and animated, but through it all, it still remained respectful. And as is typical, at the end of the event, the moderator asked each of the participants for their closing thoughts. And one of the participants closed by mentioning that often when we see Christians today disagreeing with each other or challenging one another or calling each other to repent, it's as if they assume that their call as Christians to love one another just as Christ has loved them, that it doesn't apply in these situations. But that instead it is okay for Christians to be vengeful toward each other when debating theology or to be obnoxious toward each other when challenging a certain perspective, or to be vicious or spiteful or condemning when calling a brother to repent and to turn from their sin. However, brother Christian, sister Christian, that is not how it works. Because our God, who is love, his spirit now abides in us. His spirit it has transformed us, and his spirit empowers us to love each other in all that we do. For that is the mark of the mature Christian. As David Allen wrote, our spiritual maturity church, it is not measured by our age, by how long we have been a Christian, by how long we have been a church member, nor is it measured by how much Bible knowledge we have or our level of service in the church. Instead, our Christian maturity is measured by our love. Therefore, make no mistake, church. There is no situation or conversation or action that you can take where it is good and acceptable and perfect for you to lay down your love for one another, pick up hate, and smack your brother in the head with it, for that is not the way of Christ. Therefore, 
let me lovingly challenge you with this church. One of the phrases we hear so often from our unbelieving friends and from our unbelieving co-workers and unbelieving family members is this. Well, I just can't believe in something that I don't see or that there isn't any evidence for. Or maybe if I could see God working or being present somewhere, then maybe I could believe. But it's just tough for me to believe in something that I cannot see. Now, in no way am I saying, Christian, that you can make your friends or your co-workers or your family members believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For that alone is the work of the Holy Spirit. However, what I am saying is that your love, brother Christian, sister Christian, it is evidence that the unseen God of the universe, that he is present and living and active in your life and in this world. Therefore, when your unbelieving friends and co-workers and family members hear you talk about your church family, do they hear you bad-mouthing them or complimenting them? Do they hear you gossiping about them or building them up? Do they hear you hating on them or loving them? Or when they see you with your church family, do they see you disinterested in them or engaging them? Do they see you keeping from them or serving them? Do they see you rejecting some of them or sacrificially giving to all of them? My point here is this, church. It is hard to witness and evangelize and reveal God to those who you love if there is no evidence of him or his love in your life. I'll say that again. It is hard to witness and evangelize and reveal God to those who you love if there is no evidence of him or his love in your life. Therefore, practically speaking, try not to miss an opportunity to love one another this week. Because that text message you send to someone in the church, that card you mail to someone in small group, that phone call you make to build a member up, you might not know how God is using it, but he is using it, church. For God is revealing himself to the world through the love of his children. Thus, brother Christian, sister Christian, be quick to love one another this week, next week, and forevermore. For that is evidence, church, that the God of the universe, the God who loved you, the God who saved you, and the God who eternally made you his own, that he is alive and living and active in you and in this world. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body, through our sacrificial and supernatural love for each other, give evidence of our God to the world. Father, you are love, and you have loved us by sending your son Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. For greater love has no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends, and that is how the love of God was made manifest to us. Therefore, as your children, Father, help us to put away all anger and and wrath, malice, and slander, for that does not display your love to the world. Instead, help us, Lord, to love each other as we ought, sacrificially, genuinely, and without expecting anything in return. Because above all else, it is your name, Father, your splendor, and your glory that we seek to share with the world. Thus, help us, Lord, in all that we do, to walk in love as Christ loved us, so that you and you alone may be seen and glorified and how we love each other as a church body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we cannot even begin to grasp the love that you have for us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, into this world so that we can live eternally through him. It is a love that we can never completely grasp. However, Father, let us be motivated to love others as we have been loved by you. Lord, we seek to display your glory and your presence and your love to this dark and dying world who desperately needs to see you, to hear the gospel, and to see the love of their creator. Father, we have so many reasons to love each other. But today, let us walk out of here this morning, loving each other with the motivation being that we seek to have the God of the universe display himself to the world through the way that we love each other. Amen.